Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we've got some news about Eric Tang, as well as Chow Yun-Fat, uh, some Busan news as well. And for our films this week, we look at the Bollywood spectacular Padmavat and the remake of A Better Tomorrow with A Better Tomorrow 2018. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming to us once again from his news desk in the fragrant harbor itself is Mr. Kevin Ma. Oh, you didn't have a, have a clever one this week, Paul. Yeah, you know, I, I had a little bit of a surgery that we won't get into and, uh, you know, I'm just not... At my peak cleverness at the moment, um, so we're just going with the tried and true simple forms. But how are you doing, sir? Um, doing all right. I'm super busy, mm-hmm. um, of course. <laughs> I, feel, I, feel, I feel like every episode I've said this since like October. Yeah, yeah. I'm super busy. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm just wrapping up um, a little, a huge, huge program for um, the Hong Kong Film Archive. You know, every year they do. Um, uh, well, for the last two, well, since last year they've been doing a huge program in the spring, and I think. May I can sort of give a hint is that they're doing a big 37 film program featuring two major, major Hong Kong stars, um, old films, of course, not new films. Um, so I've been I, I'm just wrapping that up uh, and I'm also doing something for a award show, an upcoming award show uh, that's coming up in Hong Kong. Sadly, uh, not the and- Love Hong Kong Film Awards, right? <laughs> No, sadly, no, because, you know, Ross can do all that himself. Um, and, but uh, and then I doing one script for a major company and I just picked up a project by a certain major Hong Kong filmmaker um, and it's really exciting because that's really exciting um, but I can review that when the time comes so it's a major 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 filmmaker that's not named Wong Kar Wai by the way so it's definitely not Wong Kar Wai but yeah um, so I've been you know juggling those projects uh, at the same time all right excellent well we'll look forward to hearing more about each of those as uh, things roll forward and you're not so much under of kind of, you know, NDA pressure, uh, as it were. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, some things to catch up on. Uh, we're talking about another b- big sort of Bollywood film this week with um, the new release, uh, Padmavat. And this is actually playing here in the States, so I guess it got simultaneous release in some places um, worldwide. Most of the world. Yeah. And yeah. Th- it's actually not, you know, not down in Miami. It's actually nearby. We have a theater nearby in a place called Royal Palm Beach, which runs a lot of the Bollywood stuff. This is where I got to see, um, Job, what was it, uh, Job Harry oh, met Sally, um, or Job Harry met... Uh, Sejal. Sejal. Sejal, yeah. Job Harry met Sejal. You watched Job Harry met Sejal? Yeah, we talked about <laughs> it here on, on, on the show, yeah. Um, they played that, and, and they get quite a few of the bigger sort of uh, Indian Bollywood films. And so this one was playing there, and I was like, ah, you know, should I should I run out and see it? It's another of those, like, epic length, two-and-a-half-hour films. 
And I looked at the trailer and I was kind of like, it doesn't look all that exciting to me. I mean, it looks grand. It looks epic. It looks like it look would, would look beautiful on a big screen. But something about it just said, ah, I think I'll wait for it. Um, and Kevin's going to talk a little bit more about that. But we did talk about, of course, the Bahubali parts one and two last year back on episode 228. So if you're interested, if you're somebody who was interested and you heard that episode and you are now looking to see that stuff um, before, I think the first one was available on iTunes at the time. Now both parts are on Netflix US. I'm not sure about um, Netflix International, but you can see parts one and two there if you're a Netflix subscriber. And again, I'd recommend it because they're big fun films. I've, I've told my dad about it and uh, he's in the midst of watching uh, Bahubali one, and he's already kind of <laughs> blown away just by you know from from the get go um, with it. So he's having fun with that. Um, and speaking of Netflix, another thing that I kind of stumbled across relevant to some previous shows. If you remember last year, we talked. Kevin talked about Michelle Chong. She's a big actress out of Singapore, known for some of her movies, um, some of her performances on. Uh, parody shows like The Noose and uh, some of her Singapore dramas. You can actually watch episodes of The Noose for free on Toggle. Either you go to toggle.com or get the Toggle app, and you can see um, some of her work there. And I recently watched her in an old uh, Singapore drama there as well on Toggle called Sayang Sayang, which was really good. And Kevin had mentioned, had done a review on her film from last year called Lulu the Movie, which I'm still waiting to see. There's no apparent, it's not playing on any streaming platforms yet. It's There's no DVD release of it anywhere that I can find. Um, so I don't know what it is with Singapore movies, but they make them. They just don't like to distribute them. Um, well, the thing is, you're not going to see that movie on a media core or toggle because, I mean, that character is from the news. But what I heard is that she made that movie without media court's blessing even though right. it was on a show by media court so you're never going to see it on media court website and she's got a i can't remember the name of it right now but she's got a movie she did a couple years back with a, a star from taiwan i think it's called almost famous or getting famous or something like that almost famous i think yeah. and you can get actually get that but you got to get the taiwan version you can get that through like yes asia but for singapore movies unless it's like a gurmit singh production uh, or, you know, one of the other big um, films, like you know, the I'm Not Stupid films or something, they don't get a lot of availability, um, which is a shame. Even if they've got, like, you know, Hong Kong stars. I remember I had a harder time tracking down the one that Sandra M did uh, a couple years back. Um, it was marriage to a ghost bride or something like that. Um, <laughs> and I had to get the, the Taiwan version of that at, at a certain point. It's, it's there's something about they I, I know they have their own streaming platforms for movies there and when I was actually there trying to just find a physical video store was difficult I remember I was at a hotel and asked the concierge where are the video shops and he's like well I think there's one in this mall over here on Orchard Road and I went there and there was none it closed down um, but that's neither here nor there anyway the point is Michelle Chong, um, pretty big name. Um, you can see her in a movie on Netflix called uh, Our Sister Mambo, which I also ah, talked about. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's still on Netflix, and you can see her in that. And that's a really fun film, especially if you like nostalgia and, and sort of old Hong Kong Chinese cinema. It's sort of a love letter to that. Anyway, um, she does a lot of work online now, and Netflix actually tapped her to do a couple promo shorts for the series Orange is the New Black. 
Uh, do you watch that show, Kevin? Yeah, I've watched the first season. Yeah. I think and I watched, I like I watched it, part just, of yeah, the yeah. first season. My wife's seen all of them. She was she was really into them. Uh, I kind of fell out after the first season because I was kind of like, okay, I kind kind of get what what this is going to continue to be going forward. Um, and I just wasn't all that into it. My, my wife loves it, but I I saw these promos and it's her playing a character that she does called Alian. Which is, I guess, a character that I don't know if it originated on the news or um, it's one that she does. She has her own YouTube channel and she does these shorts now. And you can just look for the Michelle Chong YouTube channel and see all these kind of like funny shorts that she does um, with this Alan character. And she does some other stuff there too as well. But um, yeah, it's it's really just a promo for last season's Orange is the New Black. And they get the actress who does the character Crazy Eyes. Um, <laughs> to to kind of do these scenes with her, and at first I was because I watched the second one first, and I was like, "This is just a little bit of camera and you know editing trick," and they, they've put a double in there with Michelle Chung. But no, no, they actually got the two women in the same space to do these um, little shorts together, and it's it's pretty well done and pretty funny. So I'll post those in the notes, and you can check those out. I mean, it's too bad she's not actually on the show because <laughs> I'd probably definitely go back and watch. You know, it'd be like uh, Orange is the New Black in in Singapore, which um, would be far more interesting for me, I guess. So check the show notes if that's something that interests you or just look up uh, Netflix slash Michelle Chong on YouTube and, and those uh, short little clips will, promos will pop up. All right. Shall we move on to this week's news? <laughs> All right, here at the news desk, a um, couple of series news this week, mostly Hong Kong. Um, Eric Zung and the uh, – so Eric Zung has been in the news again uh, for, you know, suing um, a mainland – I think it was a fashion um, guru for defamation uh, by bringing up again an old rumor that he actually had de- successfully defended himself against in court. Um, so, of course, after that, someone's brought back up the incident that was on the set of Fatal Vacation. Uh, Paul, you, yeah, you know so something about this? I read about this incident, and um, there, I you know, it's... Because it, it was another article on Jane Stars, wasn't it, that this came through? Yeah. And, and Jane Stars, you know, it's kind of like the Jezebel uh, site <laughs> in the U.S., which is like sort of the gossipy site, and... You know, you got to take what you read there with a grain of salt. Sometimes there's some interesting little news information about somebody's doing a certain thing, but you never really know how good their sources are or if it's just clickbait. Um, But it looked like they had gotten some from someplace an interview with Eric Zhang himself talking about the incident. Uh, So what the actual we should actually talk about what the actual scene was. Um, So actually, it's not really a scoop. Because Jane started just sort of resurfacing old crap just for kick clickbait. I think that's what happened because this has been long acknowledged as something that happened on the set. Um, this, I think, the interview that the it's all for actually is on like a something called Hong Kong Wiki, which is like a lot of sort of a Hong Kong version of Wikipedia with a lot of infamous incidents, um, things like that. So it is one of the things. Um, the actual incident, what happened is that so we. Eric Dung made this film called Fatal Vacation. Um, it's about a group of tourists in uh, Philippines and they get kidnapped. I think, or they get uh, hijacked, the bus jacked, yeah, by these group of um, uh, uh, bandits or whatever. Um, so what he's te- so actually a lot. The rumor was that there was a rape scene, and uh, because Eric Jung himself, uh, he decided not to be in the room. He just had the cinematographer in there, and he told the um, the 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 actress and the actor is that you guys can 
go as far as you need to because you have to achieve realism as long as and he of course he had to talk and this is all from this this book i think um uh there because the rumor is that yeah there was real rape happening on the on the set and it traumatized the actress so much that she never acted again so the rumor is floating around for a long time and i guessing that book is uh that interview is from a book that hkiff did about his career because um eric Zhang was the filmmaker in focus one year so i could sort of tell the pages um you actually see actual pages of that interview up on the hong kong wikipedia site and i think that's the source. That actual book is not just a profile. It's not just a magazine article. It's actually an entire book with Eric Zhang looking back at his career. So, of course, he had to address the actual incident. And his version of the story is that um, – so he's the director of the film. Uh, he told the actress, look, we're going to go pretty far, um, but there are two things. The bottom line is that there's not going to be any penetration. He's never going to go that far. And two – if we look back at the playback and we see anything that goes too far or that you're uncomfortable with, we're going to cut it. That's it. We just burned the footage. Okay. So he stepped out of the room and he left the two actors and the cinematographer in there. He cleared the set. And then after a while, he heard he, she, he heard a huge scream. Like apparently the, the woman was screaming to stop. Um, but Eric Zhang thought that she was just too into it and he didn't stop. And then finally, uh, one of the uh, females, um, I think the makeup artist or something, ran into the room and then told, called Eric Tung, uh inhuman, inhumane. He's like, you're inhumane. What the hell, you son of a blah, blah, blah. What the hell? And she's crying. The girl, the actress is bawling. Um, so even he doesn't truly, he wouldn't, he's never truly said what happened in that room. But he said that. He did say that when he watched the footage, he realized that parts of it were would never be seen could never be aired in the public he could that that there's no way it could ever be seen it's too inappropriate which suggests that maybe the guy had taken it too far and he burned that footage mm. so what gets left in the film is after a lot of cutting and cutting out what's inappropriate so he did admit that they had to cut out some stuff which what was like Eric Zhang told the actress was would only be cut if it was inappropriate and he definitely said that he said the word it cannot be shown in public mm. So you kind of guess what had happened in there, but of course he won't. He won't say he would never say what happened, or he would never go into full detail about what he saw in those footage. But he pretty much admitted that yeah, that was a scene where the incident went too far, and and he I don't know if he admit fault or not. I don't remember if he admitted fault or not, but he did say that there was a scene that a rape scene that was went too far, um, and we had to cut a lot of footage because you know it was not inappropriate to be seen in public, and that's all he said. Um, so yeah, it was brought back recently on Jane Star because, like I said, because of this whole defamation case, um, and 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 they just brought it back for clickbait, unfortunately. Yeah, and the actress in question, uh, Yu Sin Man, was uh, this was not her last film. She has a film that follows it called In the Lap of God that came out a year later. But again, it's hard to know, you know, in terms of production times and things. Um, exactly you know when this and when fatal vacation were done but pretty much after that she did not work again and you know the article does cite that it's in part due to her experience uh, on this film which again is is tragic and interesting too because i guess it just comes down to as a director you make a call for a creative choice you know and but it's a bad call in the long run and i think he kind of in the interview, he does basically kind of point to himself in, in that direction. Um, 
a bad call, and, and but he's not a new director that by this point either. I mean, he's done lots of films before he did Fatal Vacation. So it's not really yeah. a sort of a freshman mistake. It was one that seemed to be a creative choice that just kind of was a bad choice uh, in the long run. Yeah, and I, I think we're talking about this because of a, of a, of a certain... Um, it showed up on Facebook on a, on a, on a, on a forum that we, we frequent, and it was very weird because there were people who jumped out and said they don't believe it. And it's like, this isn't this isn't a me too thing. This is like if you don't believe it, it means you doesn't you don't believe in Eric Zung. So it's weird that I if I believe Eric Zung, then I believe the incident is real. And if I don't believe this incident is real, then I don't believe Eric Zung. It's really weird. Yeah. Like look, Eric Zung admitted that something happened on that set. So like WTF? Like guys, like this is not part of me too. This is just something that you know got dug out from the past. And what happens? happened and yeah he never kind of had to be held accountable for it but it's something that i think he admits to being um an unpleasant experience for all involved and it's not like eric jung is denying it he's right there it's on the printed page so it's kind of weird how like some people want to really defend eric jung and that's why i wanted before before i even spoke about it i wanted to go and watch the movie and see the scene and there's it's actually one of two rape scenes that happen and actually there's there's a second rape scene in which another character kind of goes in and and tries to take the hit basically for another character um to kind of let her off and and that one is actually in terms of the way it's shot and filmed again no nudity but it's actually a little bit more um explicit i would i would say than the one with Yusin Man, which, which that one, all you really see is her getting kind of slapped around, pushed around, and some clothes ripping. No nudity, some violence. Uh, it's pretty much kind of a, like an action slash slight exploitation film. And it got a little bit of press a couple years back because of the whole hostage taking of a tour group thing when that actually happened um, in the Philippines. And then everything kind of went south because of the government. So the parallels between Eric Zhang's movie here done you know over a decade earlier and then what ends up actually happening with that case or uh you know something that brought the movie again back into the spotlight a few years back but if you're you know interested i'd say track the movie down i think you can find some copies out there secondhand sources fairly easily um and 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 give it a watch it's not it's not a it's not a a standard sort of category three fair um with um, you know full exploitation it's got a story it's got eric Zhang. it's got um tommy wong and heck, it's even got Egg Shen, um, you know, Victor Wong from uh, Big Trouble in Little China, somebody you don't see too often. He's not in a lot of actual Hong Kong films, uh, but he's got a role here as well. So it's an interesting thing to, to to see. And, you know, if again, you've read about the case and you want to see firsthand what ended up happening in terms of the after effects, you know, the editing of it, uh, take, take a look and judge for yourself. Moving on to our next bit of news. Yes, uh, more recent news. Uh, Chiron Fat and his wife, they're suing um, a, a film company over uh, from Vegas Macau Trilogy. Uh, there's not much details known about the case. I'm guessing um, Apple Daily and the other newspapers picked it up because they saw it on the um, the Daily Court, um, court whatchamacallit, case list or whatever, and they realized that, hey, that's Chan Fat's company um, suing Bona Film Group over from Vegas to Macau. Um, so I guess that's sort of the only detail we know. They're suing them over breach of contract on the film. How are they? Um, how are they breaching the contract? I'm guessing it has to do with some certain conditions that Bona never met. Um, and of course, they 
cha- the chows uh they want money for it um but uh so it seems like a huge deal because no one ever postponed a film group it's one of the biggest film companies in china i mean you don't these guys work with Trey Hark, and um, they work with some of the biggest Hong Kong filmmakers, and they're one of the biggest film companies. They did Operation Mekong, for example. Uh, you see their you see their logo all over Hong Kong films. Uh, so it's a big deal that Chow and Fat has the clout to take on Bona Film Group. Um, but Mrs. Chow has told lo- some one or two local media when asked that, oh, it's just some you know technicality and stuff like that. I think um, we'll get we'll get it sorted soon, but. The fact that you know people don't sue people for nothing here in Hong uh, Hong Kong. I mean, it's not like it's not like America where you can take civil suits and go just sue someone for like two hundred bucks, right? It's not like the People's Court. This is like you know having to hire a lawyer and suing one of the biggest film companies in China it means that they must have tried to you know get something done on their own and and they must have been ignored long enough because from the from I guess to Macau trilogy has been over for two years now, mm-hmm. I think. So, so isn't there a fourth to, one coming uh, though? Is it? God no, I don't think I don't think Fat's ever working at watching again. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's going to happen ever again. Um, but for for Charon Fat to take the chows to have to take the case to court means that you know they must have been ignored for a long time and that they hire lawyers to take care of all this stuff. I mean, you just go sue people for nothing. Um, so I'm wondering what the breach. Is. I'm I'm sure it has something to do with bon- back end deals or bonus or something like that. Like, um, so back end deal means you know. China Fat probably got us uh, agreed to a share of the box office uh, for salary, and I'm, you know, um, usually this happens. Uh, like director, like Wang Jing probably has a has a back end deal. Direct uh, producer Andrew Lau probably has a back end deal. China Fat definitely has a back end deal. It's likely that there's just some kind of fall over that, and uh, Mrs. Chow assures everyone that it's going to get sorted very quickly. So. Um, Usually these things show up in the news and then no one ever hears about it again. But it's just interesting how the Chow's or Chow and Fat is is going to the instead of you know trying to give face to to this huge huge mainland company, he's just like screw it, I'm taking you to court. <laughs> he's like he's not worried about never getting hired again. He's freaking Chow and Fat. Um, so that's that's um, it's just sort of interesting of how how this Hong Kong stars really take on Bona Film Group for this. It's definitely not a class action suit where he's trying to get the money back for all the people who watched his movies, right? <laughs> well, if it is, we'll I want in on it. We'll get a small check in the mail in about, you know, 24 to 48 months. Uh, here, here's your here's your refund for uh, the bad movie that I that I made. We're, we're sorry, right? You know, Chow Yun-Fat seems like the kind of guy, I mean, the last story I read about him was after the one of the big storms or something, he was like out helping clear debris at one of the minibus stations you know uh just because that's I mean, the, he started a, that's the kind of guy he is you know he's like he started a foot stall on the set of from vegas to macau free serving like soup yeah. so yeah you yeah, know that's the that's um, the kind of dude he is yeah all right more money news i guess uh hong kong film fund right yeah so a uh, little background the hong kong film fund uh is uh of course the hong kong government's um fund and I've always had this had a problem with the Hong. This is not the first film initiative. This is actually um, the the Hong government funding or subsidizing, or actually not subsidizing, but uh, giving certain money to um, uh, certain films. Uh, essentially, loaning them about forty percent or up to forty percent of the budget if they're if the uh, for films that are less than cost less than twelve million, I think. So it's really for that mid budget. Um, um, mid-budget production, you know, um, that films that 
um, kind of have come. I mean, some of the conditions is that they, the films must have commercial appeal, and and it must cost less than a certain amount, and we can only loan you. It's a loan. It's not a subs- It's not a subsidy. It's a loan. It's not a grant. We can loan you about up to forty percent of your budget. Um, but of course, when you get money from government, it means all kinds of accountability. So, the Hong Kong Film Fund has lent its money to um, all kinds of productions, um, including, uh, I think, uh, there was an action film called Cow Web. Um, uh, there was, uh, I think, one of the Madol's, or at least two of the Madol films, um, got a uh, what you call it. Um, uh, some government money. In fact, I just looking at the website now. It says that um, starting in uh, late last year, the production budget of the eligible film project went up from ten to thirteen million. Yay! But but the amount of the loan has been remains capped at two million. So whatever. But um, some of the approved approved projects include um, looking at now some claustrophobia, the Abby Ho film. So that's how far back it goes uh lover's discourse echoes of the rainbow actually echoes of the rainbow i think is the only only film there that actually made enough money in fact there was a big audit uh, a couple years ago so the government has an audit department that actually goes and and you know make sure that your the monies are being used you know in a, in a responsible way and they actually uh, criticized the hong kong film fund for not getting its money back because they they give out all these money and um they can only get the money back when uh when the film actually, you know, makes a profit. So so a lot of these films don't actually make profit. So other films like Lost in Wrestling actually got 3.7 million. Oh my god. We actually paid for Lost in Wrestling. This is amazing. Uh Love Lifting, the Chapman Toe film, The Way We Dance, one of the big success story, got got uh, uh uh money. But anyway, so uh the Hong Kong Film Fund, after realizing that, you know, some people owe them money, they finally realized that, yo, um, you guys owe me owe us some paperwork so they actually announced that they want money back from two of the the 18 to 17 projects that they uh 31 projects that they approved um and they are i'm gonna find these here one is film is called 20 uh, 37 um it's a local indie film made by a director called dennis chan i hear is a terrible film um and a mainland china co-production i think starring steffi uh, called to love and to uh, the true love. I think that's one title. Another title I've seen is like to love and to breathe or something like that. Yeah, I know you don't even know this film, right, Paul? No, it's like it's a Steffi film. Yeah, yes. You would think that would From be 2014. Like a you know a big selling point. No, it's so a per- oh, it also has Alex Fong. But anyway, yeah, the film those two films actually never opened in Hong Kong. So a lot of these films that actually opened that took uh, government money. A bunch of them actually never even made it to the big screen. Um, so for him, 37, I think, was actually shown in um, Hong Kong International Film Festival once or twice. Um, but this this movie called, you know, True Love, The True Love, never came out in Hong Kong. And actually, the government had to push the company like three, four times to actually show the film in Hong Kong. They actually just um, uh, um, arranged two screenings in Hong Kong. And um, what happened is that neither of these co- production company ever gave the um, gave, gave proper accounting documents that showed how they spent the money. Um, so there's no proof of how they spent the money and what they used the money for, whether it's production or they just you know pocket the money. Who knows? So now the government is going back after the the Justice Department or whatever is is going after these two companies. They're suing them in court and they want 2.84 million Hong Kong dollars back from um, uh, 37. 
um, and they wanted backup interest. So they actually want an extra six hundred thousand dollars in interest. Um, and same thing for the other company is that they they spent seven point eight seven point nine eight million. They got one point six million. Now you guys owe us um you guys owe us that money back because you guys never actually you guys one only played played the film twice in hong kong and two you never showed us how you spent the money so this this should actually push or scare some of these um uh, recipients to showing how they they spent the money and you know it's just normal that you know they want a bit of accountability my problem with the hong kong develop film development fund is that like i was saying these are all loans these they actually express. They actually expect these films to make money back, and um, they also have these really abstract, um, what you call it, um, abstract conditions about what what qualifies as a film that would deserve money, and that's one of them is called. It has to be commercially viable, which means they're not giving money to promote the Hong Kong film industry. They're just pushing, giving money to promote the commercial film industry. Um, and I always found weird that you know this. Um, condition that a film has to be commercially viable and the fact that it's a loan like she just you know grant make these monies grant um so i always 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 found this whole hong kong film fund really odd and i always found their their terms a bit weird and besides they really have bad taste in films <laughs> like they they funded uh, love revolution by sam learn which we still haven't seen they gave that money in september 2015 film hasn't been seen um they gave the money to this film called The Merger, which went and um, supposedly, allegedly, um, actually submitted itself to all these fake film festivals in the U.S. and bought all these and allegedly bought all these awards so that it could tell the government, look, our look, our film went to these these festivals and won these awards. But the thing is, all these if you look up all these film festivals, that they actually don't have any real screenings. And there's so many. There are actually quite a few Hong Kong development from recipients that actually did that. And then you also have films like um, The True Love, or you have films like, um, I was saying earlier, um, there's a film called Love Expert from 2012, uh, starring Anita Yuan. Never got shown in Hong Kong, but you're taking Hong Kong taxpayer money. Yeah. So where the hell is the money? Um, so this is kind of one of those things where like you guys are giving these money to these movies that don't necessarily deserve it, and now you ask for it back. Like you guys should have been better about who you approve. Well, the thing with I mean, uh, you kind of got to blame the Hong the Hong Kong government on this one, I think, because if they're putting up this uh, some you know a, a sizable sum of money for films to be you know put into production, it seems like they have a pretty maybe a majority stake in a film right because usually yeah producers are getting bits and pieces of money from lots of different sources so as a major producer you think they would say all right we're going to give you this money but it's got to be paid back and until it gets paid back we reserve the right to put it sell it to itunes or sell it to a platform and makes money for us to pay back that fund uh, you know, even if it's a bad movie, it'll make money over time. And until it does so, then it's it, it doesn't go back to you, the, you know, the, the filmmakers. Once it's cleared that, then it goes back to you and you can decide what you want to do with it further. You can make further deals at that point, right? Um, well, that, that's, that seems, that like, seems the... like a logical, you know, thing to do. If you, if you don't pay your producers, you're in trouble. <laughs> I mean... 
Well, but, the Hong government actually ends up not being a whatchamacallit. It's, it's not a um, state. Well, I guess they kind of become a stakeholder. But the thing is, what you're talking about is more like the terms of the First Sum Initiative, where um, it's a grant, the money's a grant, but the rights go to the government. But yeah. um, the, the, the filmmakers are also free to snag their own distributor and they can sell the rights to distributor or the, 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 the distribution rights and get more money for the budget. But you only get this money from us. You don't have to pay it I mean, back. You don't have to worry about box office. But this thing is this is sort of done a different way. Is that they're doing it as sort of a loan? Yeah. But even um, so, it's the government. They they have the they have the ability to, if you don't pay your taxes, they can, you know, levy your paycheck for, you know, X amount. So you would think that somebody over there would have had the foresight to say, what if these guys don't pay us back? Well, we need to have a mechanism in place that allows for some money to funnel in over time to, to pay back that loan. Well, I always thought it's weird that, like, they want the money back because why is it a loan? Like, shit, if your government is really truly, truly care about um, uh, helping the film industry, why are you just lending these money out? Like, why do you have yeah, to make them commercially viable? Shouldn't you Shouldn't you sort of contribute to building the film art and let no, these, you no, know, have, have artistic no, freedom no. and blah, blah? No, sir, you live in Hong Kong, okay? The finance <laughs> center of the world, not the art center of the world, okay? It's a different mindset altogether, right? I just find it hypocritic. I just find it very, the wrong way of going about supporting the film industry, you know, becoming a banker. Yeah. Like, yes, it's very Hong Kong. It's an extremely Hong Kong thing. But the thing is, yeah, then be more careful of your money instead of giving it to crap movies like 37. Yeah, I mean, the vetting Cowet. process does seem like it's a little bit... And I know people who've gone through the the Hong Kong what is the Hong Kong Arts Development Fund and and that's a nightmare process you know to 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 go through and get approved so you think this would be equally you know equally you know high standards when it comes to the vetting process I mean for Christ's sake Paul Beach Spike is one of the films (laughs) we paid for Beach Spike that's all you need to know right we paid in various ways they paid for micro sex office we also paid in various ways more than just through the taxes well, now, okay micro sex office i can kind of understand because that was a very successful stage show you know they had like yes. at least two parts so kind of like the same thing with 29 plus one you take that in and you say look we've had this very successful stage show and we're gonna you know take this and and make it into a film that seems like a pretty easy sell. The problem is, is what you see on the stage show and what you see in the film are really two different things. It's got some of the same, you know, the same headliners, but beyond that, the writing is different. The story is like a typical kind of Hong Kong, Wong Jing-ish kind of story. It's it's not really the stuff, the gags and the things that were going on in, in the stage show. So it's a little bit of deception in that case, right? It's just like we're, we're riding on the name here more than anything else. Um, yeah, and, and it's really sad how they they these films went to these allegedly fake film festivals and 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 you know allegedly bought all these fake awards so that they could tell so the Hong Kong Film yeah. Fund can tell. Now they say that yeah, um, these films have been nominated for forty awards and won ninety five. Like yeah. wait this a is, minute, this is a, this is a great idea for earning some capital for myself and Ross and you and maybe, you know, Kenneth and other people, well, we'll just get together and we'll create like the, the podcast on fire film awards and the love HK Hong Kong film award, uh, festival yeah. and the Comcast film festival and the golden rock film festival. And we'll just say, Hey, send us some money and we'll give you a, an award. Right. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm surprised. Why didn't the producers of The Way We Dance put in Love Ishe Film Awards <laughs> at their list of awards? <laughs> you know, what, 10 recommended films by Love Ishe Film Awards. You know, why didn't you guys put those in? I mean, that will get you guys some recognition, right? Yeah. Show me the money. Um, so anyway, two films that are coming up on the, from the plan this year. You have uh, Tomorrow's Another Day, which has been actually nominated. You know, it's been recognized um, by the Hawkeye Film Critics Society. Yay, good for them. And Man on the Dragon uh, is the directorial debut of a um, uh, scriptwriter, um, Sonny Chan, uh, produced by Joe Ma, and it stars Francis Ng. So two legit movies um, coming up this year that are from the Hong Kong Film Development Fund. Uh, so I'm looking at other prizes. So actually, the, uh, the, the, the film fund also uh, subsidized uh, travel. They sponsored uh, certain films to go to film festivals. So they they actually last year they um, sponsored two very interesting projects. One is Yellowing, the documentary about um, about the umbrella umbrella movement. Mm. They sponsored that film to go participate in Vancouver International Film Festival, which is a decent film festival. They also uh, sponsored Pseudo Secular, which is another film that's about the umbrella movement to go to the Torino Film Festival. So. It's quite funny how the government actually went and sponsored two films about the Umbrella movement hmm. um, to go to film festivals, to go and, you know, represent Hong Kong uh, abroad. Well, at least they're being a little bit unbiased, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Another one that they actually sponsored, and you might find this interesting, Paul, is that they actually um, sponsored 861000 Hong Kong dollars to restore the banquet. Because that film is owned by the Federation of Hong Kong Filmmakers, because that was oh. done for the, um, that was done for charity, I think. Yeah, wasn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. It was yeah. done for the floods or something that year. Or, yeah, something yeah. like that. So they still hold the rights to it, and they are restoring the film, and the Hong government well, to help pay for it. That's great because that's a fun film to watch with all the cameos and everything. And um, I've got the DVD, but it doesn't look super. So it's good that they're doing a restoration of that. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. All right, and our final bit of news, off to Korea. Yeah, uh, this has happened today. So uh, if you guys remember, the Busan International Film Festival has been going through trouble for the last couple of years. Um, and it was all over um, the screening of this documentary that was gov- uh, critical of the conservative government. Well, last year, the the Korean uh, society finally came together and ousted the president over a, a scandal um, um, about her sharing information with a friend or something like that and of course exposed a lot a lot of different things including um uh, how the ministry of culture actually kept a blacklist of artists who were critical of the government um and another thing that's happened is that it sort of revealed how the city government um pressured the festival oppressed the festival suppressed the festival's artistic integrity they tried to um prosecute the the head of the festival at the time leon guan um and and they audited the festival and they make sure that he got charged or something and things like that and that's led to a huge storm last de- development was that you know they brought back um the festival founder kim dong ho to be uh, the pr- festival president with uh, actress kong Ka- Kong but the thing is they were also critics there was a staff uprising essentially a mutiny at the festival um a lot of the staff came out against them and th- those two resigned uh, after the end of the last edition. But today, um, the festival, um, uh, they called a special assembly to vote for the new uh, the, um, leading members of the festival, and they finally reinstated Leon Guan as the president, the chairman of the Busan International Film Festival. After all these years, Mr. Lee is back on top 
um, and uh, Jay Jung, who was the head of the Asian film market and one, also one of the founding members, he's been giving a promotion uh, up to he becomes the um, festival director. So um, this is the way that the city, although the, actually the city of Busan still has yet to apologize for doing what they did to the festival. They reduced funding. They got they ousted the, the leading members of it, um, the leading members because they were responsible for the documentaries being shown. Um and now the festival has reinstated these two guys uh, back to top positions. Um, and of course, last year they also lost Mr. Kim Ji Suk, who was uh, another one of the founding member. He was the deputy director, um, and he was uh, one of the most important members of the festival. But he passed away uh, while visiting the Cannes Film Festival. So it's been a very, very tumultuous uh, couple of years for the Busan International Film Festival. And now Mr. Lee is back on top, and um, I'm guessing. Um, the festival wants to put everything back behind them um, and and sort of continue on. So that's kind of good news uh, for the Busan International Film Festival. All right. Excellent. That's going to wrap it up for our news this week. When we come back after this short musical interlude, Kevin's review of Padmavat. <laughs> And welcome back. So, off to Bollywood this week with Kevin's review of the latest feature, Padmavat. Yeah, sorry. I mean, I've I've been watching Hong Kong films, but, you know, it's just been so interesting what's happening, the films coming from outside um, Hong Kong. Um, I mean, you guys would rather hear me talk about Padmavat rather than uh, the new Vincent Cook film, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> would we? Seriously. Would we really? I don't know. Would we really? Really? I don't know. I mean, I can just quickly say it. Eason Chan plays Jackie Chan. That's it. It's barely amu- is somewhat amusing. That's it. Okay, that's quick review. See, we're covering three <laughs> films this week, Paul. Bonus. <laughs> bonus. Okay, bonus review. Okay, now the real review. So, Pat Bavad, uh, you might have heard about this film in the news. It's a big Bollywood uh, extravaganza. It's based on a um, epic poem from the year 1540 um, by Malik Muhammad Jayasi. The, the poem is about a queen called Patnavati. Um, she was the queen of the Rajput, who was uh, very famous for committing a certain act to protect herself against uh, invaders. Um, but of course, but um, before the film opened, or actually while they were even shooting the film, there was a rumor um, that director Sanjay Lila Bansali had um inserted i think uh, a very a scene where there's a dream sequence or something where Padmavati um and the muslim invader um whose name Arwadin uh or the Kliji, that was a tribe's name there's a something about a love sequence or something in the dream sequence um in the film and the the conservatives of course went nuts especially the rashput the people of the rashput they went nuts they thought it's an insult to their mother they thought Padmavati is one of the biggest you know sort of the biggest figures in their culture even though that's actually historical evidence or historical records that suggest that Padmavati never even existed in the first place um but you know 
protests erupt. There were death threats. The production had to move to different plate to different state because of these protests. Um, and um, the government almost banned the film. The producer had to essentially move the film, and they took it to the producers took it to court to make sure the film can be released. The Supreme Court ruled that um, the film must be released that's how big it was the supreme court had to make a decision on it but the pro- protests were so violent that um a lot of the um uh, uh cinemas and regions where the the, the the conservative side um uh, rule those cinemas had to uh not show the film in fear of security issues um so this story of the film's release itself is actually even more dramatic than the film itself um but yeah, I, I of course I must see it. I I've actually seen the tr- the director's previous past uh, previous films of this cast, uh, that being Deepika Padukone and Ramir Singh. Um, in twenty fourteen, did a twenty fifteen, they did a film called Ramlila, which is um, an Indian take on Romeo and Juliet. And then the year after that, they did by Jaro Mastani, which was also a huge hit. Um, so this is the third film together, and of course it's the biggest out of all of them because of building on the success of the two films. Um, so this is the third film of the, the, of the same trio, but this time Ranveer Singh actually plays the bad guy, while the Pika Patacone plays um, the titular character Padma Vadi. So the story, um, in the 13th century, Rajput ruler Ratan Singh, um, played by Shahid Kapoor, travels to Singhao, the kingdom of Singhao, in search of precious pearls. Um, he ends up marrying the kingdom's beautiful princess, Padmavadi, played by Deepika Patakone. Meanwhile, Aduadin Kliji, uh, played by Ravir Singh, um, has been, um, he, he sort of had this real tumultuous rise to the top. After his uncle um, took uh, the throne of New Delhi, he, he essentially murders him and takes over his tribe. Um, so when the Rajput royal priest is caught lusting after Padmavati, he is exiled from um, the nation of Rajput. To get revenge, um, the royal priest tells Alu Adin that he will only become a successful ruler if Padmavati is by his side. So this begins a war between Alu Adin and Ratan Singh with Padmavati caught in the middle. Um, so like I said, the tr- controversy has been bigger than the film. Um, there's a whole lot of rumors thrown around about what's in the film and what's not. And actually, the the the, the, the irony or the the absurd part is that all those the scenes that you know people get all upset about or they feel so insulted about, they don't even exist in the film. But the director had to like put out a statement like, "Yo, we never shot a scene like this. There was no such scenes, um, and no one believed them. Or people didn't listen, and they kept protesting. It keeps calling the film insult. In fact, um, one." One conservative politician went um, um, far enough saying last week that they will, since the Supreme Court is protecting the freedom of speech of this guy that's, you know, insulting the the mother of the Rashpu people, we're going to make a film about Sanjay, um, about the uh, director's mother, Sanjay Lila Basali's mother, so, you know, so that we can insult his mother, too, um, you know, just which just tells you something freedom of speech doesn't. You know, it doesn't really limit to stupid people. You know, it's like it's one of the most idiotic things I've ever heard. Um, but yeah, that's how big it's been in India. So of course, I have to see it. Does the film live up to the hype? Not really, because I mean, the offending scene doesn't really exist in the film. And actually, the film is extremely, extremely respectful to the Rajput. In fact, the Rajput is sort of like the Spartans in Three Hundred. That's how like respectful it is. Like they keep 
voicing about how big, how respect the print, you know, the principles of the Rashput people or Rashput warrior, and and how great the Rashput nation is, and how dignified they are, and how great Padmavati is, and how much you self-sacrifice, and how great the king Ratan Singh, how great he is, and what a what a what a what a great man he is. You know, it's actually if you're a Rashput, it's a very good day for you when you watch this film. Um, the story is a bit similar to Troy. You know, it's about a woman that sets, you know, sets the, the thousand sails, except, you know, in uh, the queen here is much, much more honorable. She didn't even do anything to deserve this. It's just because of some royal priest who, you know, had a grudge against the nation and set off this war. And yeah, of course, this um, evil king has to just has to have this woman. Um, so it's all about yeah, it's about war, waging war just for uh, a, a beautiful woman. So in that sense, it's kind of similar to the the story, the war of, of um, the Troy uh, war. Um, in fact, actually, the film doesn't paint Rajput as negative. It's actually paint the Muslims as even bigger villains. Um, they are just quite evil here, like you know. Um, and and in fact, this is why the film's been banned in Malaysia. It's not because the film, you know, uh, offended the Rashputs in Malaysia. It's because the films offend the Muslims in Malaysia. And actually, that's more normal to me. Yeah, the film is quite. Um, they paint the the Muslim um, uh, invaders a really huge villain. And you know, at the end of the day, you just can't please everyone really. Um, in fact, I, I find that ban actually more more convincing than the ban than the ban that almost happened in India. Um, but you know, I'm not a a member of the Rashput tribe. I'm not Indian. Um, maybe I'm not looking at this with uh, enough sensitivity. But honestly, I find that the Rashputs have really nothing to worry about if they watch the film. Um, so the production scale is obviously huge. It's the most expensive Hindi ever made. The production um, budget is about 32 million American dollars. And you see pretty much every cent on the screen, including the actors. I mean, the actors are some of the biggest actors in Bollywood, so so they obviously get a ton of money to look really beautiful, and um, the production design is gorgeous, it's really colorful, of course there's CGI, but why would you not expect CGI in a, in a production like this? But um, this, the war scenes are really well produced, um, and the sets are amazing, you know, it's just exactly what you expect to see in the most expensive Hindi ever made. It, um, and but it's a pretty simple story. I mean, warmonger wants something and wages war for it. It's a very simple story, but it's a two and a half hour film. Um, it's funny because the film is about Patmavati. It's supposed to be about Patmavati, but she's actually missing in much of a certain section because the film does have to concentrate on Aduadin versus Ratan Singh, um, and and she's actually missing for a good part of the film, um, about half an hour or so, I guess. And it's really weird because she's not really a main character until. Um, a twist in the third act uh, meant that she had to step up and save the nation. So it takes a while to get there. It's about an hour and a half before I think the Pedro Pedicone becomes even like a real character that actually steps in and does something. And that's a bit sad. I mean, it's not insulting, but I mean, that's a sort of not great storytelling, I suppose. There are still really great moments. Of course, it's a big event movie, so my screening was very um, was sold out very quickly, and the audience was very rowdy, and they responded to the big moments with a lot of glee. There are a couple of really um, uh, dark moments of humor, um, or when you know the good guy, the quote unquote good guys, the Rajput, they get a good sort of moment, victory moment in, or a good joke in. People really responded well to it. Aduadin's a pretty ugly villain. He's a warmonger and he's a womanizer and he will kill his uncle for the throne and all that stuff. But Revere Singh, 
he is having so much fun chewing the scenery. I mean, he chews the scenery, spits it back out, and then fries it on a pan, and then eats it some more, and opens his mouth while chewing in 3D. That's how big, like, that's <laughs> how much he loves this. Um, here's this big dance sequence in the middle that I think is the best thing I've seen in a while in a Bollywood film. I just got, I got really excited. I mean, I know he's a bad guy and all, but he's such a badass in this film. He's so much fun to watch him on screen. And it's probably the reason, it's the only reason why he gets so much screen time, because he's being played by Ranveer Singh. If it was any other actor just playing a, uh, a, um, a, a not stereotypical, but a um, one note one dimension villain especially muslim villain he is going to get like not get that much screen time but veer saying plays him with so much glee it's just something so much fun and i think he's really the reason to watch it meanwhile the, the pika pedicone like i said doesn't really get her due until 90 minutes into the film and she is she has this because i think in the poem it says that um, the Padmavati's skin is translucent like water, and she's really beautiful. So it's really weird because the Pekapetacone's face gets like this Instagram filter laid on her face. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like one of those China photo apps where <laughs> it just sort of put this weird sheen on your face to clean up the skin. Uh, and it, and it's like Pekapetacone like has this filter on her face the entire time, so I couldn't stare at her much because I just get got so distracted looking at her in her unnaturally perfect skin. Um, um, but yeah, also weird thing is Alu Adin actually has a gay henchman. And I think the film, I'm not sure when the film was shot. It was like before Beauty and the Beast came out. But he has this gay henchman who like totally has their hots for him and does this in a really like obvious way, like really explicit way. Like it was so explicit that even my audience, I think they were kind of confused. Like, what is this a gay character in a Bollywood film? What's going on? But um, but his depiction is really a bit disturbing in this day and age because it's so openly, flamboyantly, stereotypically gay that um, I think the PC crowd would find it a bit weird. Even I found it. I mean, I found it a little bit weird. But you know, I am pretty PC um, as far as I can be. Um, so I found it very weird how they just picked a gay henchman and why does he even have a gay henchman maybe he's in the poem i don't know i haven't read the poem um but ultimately it's an enjoyable film i mean it's a little dry in the middle but the really big moments and some of the really sort of rousing moments really make up for it the the ending is actually sort of writes itself but there's that whole journey that gets there um and i think it there are really good fun moments in the film and it's a really gorgeous film that should be seen on a big screen um but ultimately i don't think it lives up to the hype um and i actually recommend the first two films by the trio instead um if you have a chance rob lila which uh and by jaro mastani i think both films are actually on itunes already um and if you are a fan of those films then by all means definitely see patmavat um but if this is don't make this your in well i guess it, this is a good introduction to the trio because this film is the worst of the three but then afterwards you can sort of move up to the better films the previous films and you can see why this trio has done three films together because they've been so successful um so yeah Padmavat, i had fun with it um but i felt a bit reserved about it i had some sort of my my um uh, reservations about it while i was watching it but now that i think back about think back on it actually it's not that bad i mean a lot of the, the some of the reviews in india come out as, and they're not very positive about the film but actually i had more fun with it than i than than i probably should and uh it's big big bollywood spectacular and in that sense is actually worth watching 
All right. I mean, uh, talking a little bit about the controversy again, I'm slightly reminded of a couple things because you said this is based on a poem. So in some ways, it's very similar to Mulan, right? Mm -hmm. And with the casting, with the recent casting of the Disney Mulan remake, which I guess is now in production, there was a rumor at one point that Disney had planned to put a white guy in a role that would have a romance with Mulan, which is completely wrong in every <laughs> in every sense of the word because there's no there's no appearance of foreigners in the poem and the only foreigner I think I've seen in any iteration was uh what's his name? The is it Vitus or, or something? The guy the, the the guy who was the the eunuch in the the one with Zhao Wei. Do you remember that? He was like the yeah 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 the the change the one with uh, Chen Kun yeah he was like the prisoner or something and he was like singing the song I was like yeah, the, uh, the Russian the Russian opera singer or yeah something. his name yeah. I think v- his name Vito? is Vitus or or, or something. Vitus yeah, yeah Vitus you know that was awesome um he was awesome but yeah it's like you know uh, and people were all up in arms like you know Disney shouldn't you know that shouldn't do that there shouldn't be any white faces in a Mulan film and I kind of agree with that because I mean it's you know even though like this. There's question about, you know, is it just a creative work or is it actually based on reality? You know, nobody knows. Uh, but still, don't take too much creative license and just, you know, keep it as it is. The Mulan cartoon was already controversial enough back when that came out. Um, so, you know, you don't want to raise any more ire than, than you absolutely need to. So I kind of see the, you know, the point here. Um, with people, you know, getting upset with something they see as very classic, especially if it's something that's a direct kind of lineage for their heritage, right? Um, so I think that's an interesting point. And on uh, the actress too, Dapika Padukone, um, I I haven't seen a lot of work. I mean, she was of course in uh, Return of Xander Cage last year, um, but you know, is she somebody who you're drawn to? I mean. Um, I haven't seen Om Shanti Om, but it's on my to-watch list because, of course, Shah Rukh Khan's in that. Um, other films of hers you might recommend for people who maybe aren't familiar, too familiar with um, who she is and what she's done? I love the Pika Patacone. Like, she's one of my favorite actresses in the world. Like, yeah, uh, Ramlila, like, she's one of the best Juliets I've seen um, because she's just so, like... Damn, she is such a she's just such a what's the word um presence on screen and she really you can see why people fall in love with her and she is so good in that film um Ye Jawani De Hai Diwani which was a huge um hit with uh, Ranbir Kapoor uh it was kind of a um romantic com romantic drama really uh Chennai Express with Shah Rukh Khan uh she wasn't so good in that but you know it's because that was a Shah Rukh Khan film so it's imp- impossible but um if you really want to see what the Puka, the Pika Patacon can do. Um, I would suggest Remlila, obviously. I I think that's one of her greatest um, uh, performances. She was also in Piku, uh, where she plays daughter of um, uh, Amitabh Bachchan. It's a road trip move, road trip drama with Amitabh Bachchan and 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 the Pika Patacon playing her, her his daughter. That's pretty good, and it's a good display of her talent. Um, Om Shanti Om, obviously, that was actually her big breakout film because, you know, imagine your big first, your second film role and you're uh, you're starring against against opposite Shah Rukh Khan. I mean, that was a big, big deal. Um, so, so those films are definitely good. I mean, she's been in, you know, films with the big 
body with stars you know she was also in happy new year uh so shawood khan likes to use her um as as his female lead but it's really the films where she sort of steps up and and plays the female lead that really she shines in so um so those films are are all i recommend those films yeah Uh, of course you can always uh check out the crossover film uh chadney chalk to china which i'm always reminded i didn't even mention that (laughs) i not even mentioned that though um which you know because well i was watching uh, last year kung fu yoga Right, and it was all about oh the, the big you know the first film to cross over Hong Kong or China cinema and Bollywood cinema. I'm like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think Bollywood kind of got the leg up on that first, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but yeah, you can uh, check out that one. It's not not a terrible film, but it's probably not the best in her repertoire. And welcome back. So for our second East Screen film this week, um, it is a remake of a classic with A Better Tomorrow 2018. This is coming from director Ding Sheng, who you might have been familiar with some of his other works like Little Big Soldier, Saving Mr. Wu, and most recently Railroad Tigers. Um, So I'm going to say a couple things off right off the bat. Uh, This is probably a difficult film for people in my generation because, again, it's, again, China remaking a, what many of us would consider a classic piece of Hong Kong cinema. And the track record for that hasn't turned out well. The other thing we need to kind of say up front here, too, is that Kevin won't really be lending his voice to this because he actually <laughs> worked on this in a small way. And he hasn't seen it in full, right? You haven't um, actually gotten a chance to sit down and, and screen the film. I haven't um, seen a final cut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is pretty much going to be all on me. So you can send your hate mail to, uh, you know, eastscreen at gmail.com and <laughs> I'll be happy to uh, bear the brunt of your ire should you have any. But yeah, this is um, pretty much a full-on straight remake with a few minor curveballs thrown in uh, in some places. The story, if you know the story of the original, it's basically that same story. Um plot devices and all for the most part, but basically Kai works as a boss in a small-time smuggling operation, and when his partners want to expand the operation to include drugs, he resists and is ultimately betrayed. Uh, His revelation as a criminal to his younger brother Chow, who is a new police officer, causes strife, and Kai seeks to redeem himself after serving time, but his past just won't seem to let him go. So again, if it sounds familiar, if you're picturing the faces of people like Leslie Chung and Chow Yun-fat and of course uh, Dick Long, among others, yeah, it's uh, pretty much that same story. Uh, The faces have changed, some of the locations have changed, but the plot hooks are all there. A couple other things that kind of point out this film 
as they do in other films, is a lot of the musical cues are here, right? So a lot of the theme music is present, but it's used very subtly up until, I'd say, the third act of the film. Um, it's, you know, they're, they're using it in a softer way, no, not quite the synth music of the original film, but a little bit of, you know, piano at times. And it's, it's, it's kind of nice the way they, they use that. But then they kind of go back and they throw in direct Leslie songs at times. And you're like, okay, yeah, uh, they're kind of doing the same thing that the remake of A Chinese Ghost Story did. And, um, you know, some of, some of the other remakes where they just pulled directly back into uh, the Hong Kong classic. But I think it's better handled here. I think that director Ding Shang knows he's dealing with the remaking a classic and he's got a fairly light touch um, in terms of he's trying to be respectful of the original. That being said, it gets self-referential in a few places. For example, there's a scene where characters are sitting at a bar and somebody points to a picture of Chow Yun-fat from A Better Tomorrow. Another character's got toothpicks in his mouth. Uh, it, it's very meta in some ways. Too much? Maybe. It's right on that borderline. I was kind of at the end of it, I was kind of like, okay, you know, I know what he, I know what you're doing there, but I was still okay with it. Um, the, the other aspect of this too is that there's a character who at one point says, everything's a cycle. Everything comes around again after a couple decades, uh, which is again a very much a reference to the idea of the the director knows that they're kind of redoing this material that was a classic, you know, a few decades ago. And it's maybe time to do it again. Not everybody's going to agree with that. But, you know, in some, again, with some directors, they're going to handle this better than others. I'm always reminded, though, of, I think it was Roger Ebert, or maybe it was Gene Siskel. One of them said that you don't need to remake good movies. Why don't you spend the money to remake the bad ones and make them better? <laughs> um, and I've always kind of held to that. So I always go into a remake with a little bit of trepidation. A couple other things they do here. Some of the characters, you know, you've got your, you've got your main core three characters. You've got uh, the character of Kai, who was the, you know, the Ho character, the Dick Long character. Um, Maku or Mark uh, the Chow Yun-Fat character. Um, you've got Chow, who was Kit, who was Leslie Chung in the original. You've got a character named Kang, who is Shing, or the... Uh, what's the actor's name, Kevin? That escapes me. Y.C. Lee? Y.C. Lee. Yeah, YC Lee. you know. Um, and they're in the pretty much carbon copy roles for the most part. Um, but in some of the sequences, and you're going to think of classic sequences, right, that come to mind when you think of this film... And the director does those sequences, and in some cases he's recreating them, but he's adding a bit of flair to them. He's changing locations. And a, there's a very certain classic sequence involving a very certain classic actor that everybody thinks of when they think of this movie. And they go for that here in a very different way, but it's still similar enough that you know what's coming, you know what's going to get done. Um, but where things get different, so for example... You watch the original, there's a heavy body count, and nobody seems to care. And this one, because it's a China film, well, you can't make the protagonists who are bad guys out-and-out murderers. You just can't do it. So 
you end up getting the the decision that people are going to get shot in the leg all the time, um, which takes away a little bit of the gravitas maybe of it. Does it make the character seem more heroic by making that decision? Uh, you know, because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, all right, I know why you did that. I know why you did that. But still, it's a character choice. And you may come away with thinking, okay, the character maybe is a bit more heroic because he's not a cold-blooded killer. Something we didn't think too much about because we were all overwhelmed by the action of, you know, the originals. But it's a conscious decision. And it's one that if you're familiar with the differences between making a Hong Kong film versus making a China film, it's going to be there spinning around in your mind when the scene comes up. Some other instances, if you remember the original, um, one of the big sequences in the beginning was the counterfeiting. And, you know, I went back and watched this again to be sure the comparisons were fresh in my mind. They use real to real, real tape. <laughs> you know, that's how old the original movie is. They, that, you know, the big technology of the time, the high technology of the time was real to real tape um, to do the counterfeiting. And here it's all on a USB stick. So in terms of the technology, yeah, it's maybe time to technologically update some things, but the film doesn't really rely too much um, on technology as a prop. And the old film too still holds together fairly well, despite the fact that characters don't have smartphones and, and they don't have a lot of the same, you know, tech tools that we have around us today. Uh, so the basic character structure is the same. You also have, um, for example, the old character of Mr. Yu, who was the father or the relative of the Shing character, the YC Lee character in the original, is now played by a character named uh, uh, Ha Ge or Brother Ha, who's played by Lam Shut as kind of the the heavy, the villain, literally, of the film. Um, <laughs> and he's great. He, you know, throws around his kind of wonky mainland hmm? no he's great <laughs> weight he's great throws his weight around he, 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 he well, yeah he, he he kind of throws around his his wonky mainland accent um which is fun and funny if you're familiar with you know the way he talks um there is a weak link though of course and i guess that's perhaps with actor uh darren wang who plays the mark character and it's not his fault uh, it's not that he does a bad job. He's young. He kind of looks like a a young, almost idolish kind of character um, in terms of the the way they dress him and his style. Uh, you know, you tell somebody you've got to step into a classic role with some, with a character that had the gravitas of a Chow Yun Fat. That's a hard role to fill, and he does an admirable job here. So um, it's it's not a slight against him. It's just, who are you going to put in that role? I actually think the actor, not not Darren Wang, uh, the one who plays Kai Go. Uh, uh, Wang Kai. Yeah, Wang Kai. I think he, I think uh, Wang Kai was, had more, much more screen presence. You know, when you look at the original, you've got very strong screen presence from Dick Long, from Chow Yun-Fat, and from Leslie. Um, here, the screen presence, I think, is not quite as even uh, as the original. So I don't think that the Mark role here is a breakout role for Darren Wang as an actor. But again, he's he's not bad in it. It's just that's a hard role to fill. Um, there is some inclusion of new elements that were not in the original. Uh, there's a romance for Kaigo with this girl, uh, which feels familiar because it feels like I've seen that plot line in another, another movie, but I can't pin it down. 
So if like you, every other movie. Paul? Well, yeah, it's it, but it's like <laughs> there, there's one in particular where you know she ends up getting hooked on drugs and uh, by the by the con character and and basically he ends up ruining ruining her life. I've seen that exact plot point, you know, and and he does it to kind of get back at the the Kaigo character. Operation Mekong. <laughs> okay, maybe the, I'm I'm thinking of an older film uh, okay. where, where they well, did happens, this, yeah. but um, yeah, it's 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 that kind of thing. That it's like, you know, there are a couple new things, but the new things are still kind of old things in terms of the, the elements. Um, the film itself looks good. It's very capable. It keeps the pace going. I was never bored. I think it's got a running time of close to two hours. But even though I said, I know this story, I know where it's going, um, the new locations, the great cinematography, the look of it all sort of kept me going along for the ride. I you know, didn't find myself really looking at my watch at all. Hong Kong Connections, as I mentioned, Lam Shud is here. There's another secret cameo that I'm not going to mention, but it's well-placed and it's great. And again, it's got a significant message there. Um, the girlfriend of the Chow character, who is the parallel for the Kit character, Leslie Chung's character, if you remember, his girlfriend was, uh, she was like an um, aspiring music student at one point. Um, they like run around to make music recitals and things. His girlfriend here is a nurse, and that parallels into some of the moments when characters get hurt and things. They move from Taiwan, which set sort of the scene for um, the Ho character's downfall, um, the Dick Long character's downfall in the first film, to Japan. And part of me wonders if that was a political move as well, right? Um, because you're putting it in Taiwan and then the, the sort of tensions between Taiwan and China now. Uh, if you make it Japan, that's easier to say, bad guys in Japan, bad, bad, bad. Um, but it also makes it different enough from the original film. Uh, there's a small Taiwan connection with, you know, one character who you barely see. But mostly um, it's between, it's the smuggling operation that happens between China and between uh, Japan. The downside of all this, though, is that it's a China film. And as I've pointed out to a couple of the things they do, um, you very much feel it's a China film at times, and it has a very China ending. Um, and I won't say more than that, but it's if there's a really bad part of it overall, it's it's what happens at the end of this film because it's a China ending. I mean, we've seen plenty of China remakes of Hong Kong films over the years. This is by far the most competent one in terms of my level of enjoyment in it. Um, and again, a lot of people may go into this not liking it because it's touching on that classic territory and taking the kind of, you know, sort of how dare they stance. And a lot of times that's how I come out of a film. Like when I came out of um, uh, a Chinese ghost story, you know, I'm like, okay, you just threw a bunch of CGI on the screen and Louis Koo and you used Leslie Song. How dare they? Um, but at, at the end of this, I was like, that was a pretty good movie for a remake. I don't think it's going to replace the original as a classic, but I think that the director handles it well enough, pays it enough respect, uses enough of the nostalgia, um, even though he kind of, you know, again, gets a bit too meta at times. Um, there's enough of that there to make this fun for fans of the original and, and make it a worthwhile watch in my mind. This is not my favorite film of the series. My favorite film of the series is the third one, 
um, which is like the prequel to everything. I think for me, that's the most fun. I always felt the first film was such a downer um, and, you know, a bit, bit darker than I liked. Of course, the third one's kind of a downer too when you get to the ending, but I won't spoil it. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking if this is a super success, what do they do? Do they go on? Do they make a kind of spoofy version in part two? And then did they, they do a prequel for part three? I wouldn't mind, um, even if they decide to go further with, you know, Darren Wang as the Mark character. But, um, you know, I'm thinking, okay, who would they get to play Anita's role? <laughs> you know, uh, is there an actress who I would be okay coming in to kind of take up that position? Because that's a classic role. Um, that's one of the reasons I love uh, that movie is primarily because of her. Again, this is a pretty good recommendation from me to see this film, even if you have some trepidations like I normally do going into these remakes, give it a shot because I think it's, it's uh, of the remakes they've done, it's the best one by far. Do you, do you think there's a issue of, I mean, just like Chinese Ghost Story or just like the remakes of those Hong Kong films, that there's a, a sort of trend of cultural appropriation where, you know, Chinese culture, they, they make money off these people's nostalgia for the Hong Kong cinema that they love so much in the nineties. Cause you know, back in the nineties, um, before the Chinese film industry took off, that's what people watched. They watched Hong Kong films, and that's kind of why why these Chinese film companies decide to remake these Hong Kong films. Essentially, it, do you think there's a sense of cultural appropriation going on here? I wouldn't go that far. I mean, that's cultural appropriation is such a weighted term now. It's like, how dare you appropriate my culture? I mean, for better or worse, it's still Chinese culture. You know, it's it's Cantonese cinema, Hong Kong culture that's different from that of mainland China. Um, and do they have a right to to remake it in their own image? Sure. Do I need to like it as much as I liked the original or does anybody? No, not really. I think a lot of it just comes down to business like anything. You know, we're going to take I mean, it's the same. It's the same with, you know, Michael Bay and Transformers. We're going to take something that people have a sense of nostalgia for and we're going to make it in the way we want to make it. And if you don't like it, we don't care because we got your money. You know, it's, it's a buying up of an intellectual property and a selling of that property because it's got a fan base behind it and it's made money and it's been popular rather than taking that same money and saying, we're going to make something new that we we're not sure is going to, you know, make money. The difference I think here is again, I think the director, who I, you know, when I look over his filmography, um, I tend to like most of his stuff. Um, it, it's, it's got a sense of quality to it. Um, you know, I, I loved Little Big Soldier. I was really surprised by Railroad Tigers. I mean, you can talk a little bit about, you know, politics and stuff in that film if you want to, but it's a fun action film. Uh, liked Saving Mr. Wu a lot. So, you know, I think he tends to go at stuff and has a good sense for how to handle it. And I think he handles this very, very well for, for what it is. Um, and that's a, that's not an easy thing to do. And I think, again, if you look at the track record of stuff that's been done for my money, it, it's not been handled very, very well. It's, it mostly has felt like a cash grab and a CGI fest more than anything else. So in, in terms of this film, you can't really talk about it, but you know, <laughs> has there been a remake of a classic that you've seen that you've said, yeah, okay, you know, or has it all been pretty bad in your mind? I'm trying to think of one, but I don't, I mean, I, the thing is I could say that 
Once Upon a Time in China is pretty good, but it's not really a remake, is it, right? It's not... Um, it's more like a continuation of a series. I, I yeah. didn't even like Rise of the Legend, so, so no, yeah, I didn't like I mean, that remake. So you've got that. You've got... Um, go Chinese ghost story. Chinese ghost story, which you've I didn't got like. The White Snake, which, which I didn't was, like, which was not great. And then you've got the Bride with Le- White Hair, Fist of Legend. Yeah, um, the Fist of the Fist of Legend, Donny one, which yeah, I didn't like. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, it, 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 again, it just has felt like there's been this trend of let's tap back into these properties because they're they've got money behind the name more than anything else. Um, so as I again as I go through the list, this one really comes out on top. I think it's um, of the ones we've mentioned. I don't feel a desire to watch any of them anytime soon, but I'd like to see this one again uh, when it's out on video. So that to me smells of something that's successful for me in that regard. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily the LoveHKFilm.com site and the Hong Kong Movie Database We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash concast. Eastscreen at gmail.com is our email, and you can find us on Facebook at EastSWestS. As always, please follow along with Kevin in all that he does. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? If you're flying uh, on Cathay Pacific Airways or Cathay Dragon Airlines, you can read my work on the Discovery and Silk Road magazines. Um, this month, I well, now it's February coming up. I write about. Gosh, I always forget when the film actually the magazine comes. Out, I always forget about what I've um, written about. I write about Suburbicon and Free Billboards uh, outside Ebbing, Missouri, um, for World Film Club. I wrote about uh, not loving Vincent. No, that was last month. Um, yeah, well, read the magazine. <laughs> you find out. <laughs> the thing is, I I read the magazine. Like, I have to read the magazine multiple times every month because you know we get the blueprint and color proof and all that stuff. And then once the time comes to publish, actually, already so deep into the next issue, I always forget what's going on in the previous issue. Um, so go ahead and read my work if you're actually see the magazine um i am on twitter i am at the golden rock that's one word the golden rock uh i still have a website called asian cinema but as you can tell i haven't had any time to um work on it unfortunately so news has been rather slow um hopefully i am traveling to a few film festivals uh later on in a couple um, upcoming months and perhaps when i actually finish my freelance work, which may be never, um, I may get back to working on it again. But it is asiainsinema.com. Uh, and you can email me at uh, kevin at asiacinema.com. All right. Excellent. Please do check out our friends over at the podcast on Fire Network as well. And our next show, which will be episode 248, um, I'm not sure what's coming up because uh, we may have a couple of bye weeks uh, in the interim until the Chinese New Year films land. Um, I know that nearby, well, not so nearby, but down in Miami, we're getting two films, I guess through Wellgo, which are The Monkey King 3 and Monster Hunt 2. So I've got to try and plan a long day 
where I can go down and, and watch both of those on the same day. So that's going to be fun, and we'll be able to come back and talk about those. Um, but we may have a show before then. I know those are dropping here on February 16th, and that's also a big day because of the Black Panther movie, um, which I'm probably not going to get to watch because I still haven't seen Thor. Um, I'm waiting for that to drop on video. Um, so, yeah, there'll be something. But we might have a show between now and then, depending on what I see and what Kevin wants to talk about. So, Well, Paul, I mean, I've got to talk about Johnson Lee's staycation. Come on. Okay, sure, yeah. Um, We've got to talk about that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll have something. Uh, so all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Green, West Green podcast saying Lunar New Year is almost upon us. Do you have your red packets ready? I don't, but uh, I hope to have some soon. So we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody.